You're ready. Your mic's open. Go ahead. Okay. Good afternoon, and welcome again to the Sirius Security Seminar. Uh, it is a distinct pleasure for me to introduce our next guest, and to be in town to be able to introduce our speaker today. Uh, someone I've known for well over a decade, uh, been very influential in the field in a number of ways, uh, Richard Power. And I met Richard first when he was the uh, editor-in-chief for publications for uh, the Computer Security Institute. And while there, he was responsible for a number of things, their newsletter and, uh, for, as one example, but in particular, getting started the, uh, the annual computer crime survey, uh, the, state, the Clear uh, and Future Danger publication that CSI uh, put out, very valuable publication. After that, he went on to become the uh, director uh, for global security intelligence for uh, Deloitte and is currently uh, an independent consultant uh, who writes and speaks and advises on issues of security in the big picture, more than simply the technology. I think you'll find his views very interesting. So please join me in welcoming Richard Power. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Um, Professor Spafford, or Spaff as we call him in the underground, <laughs> is, uh, is, has been one of my heroes for as long as I've known him. And as I mentioned, it's over well over a decade and uh, the hero of many others. Um, this talk is the last of seven talks that I've given this year, and all of them turned out to be in, this, in a 60-day period. And um, uh, so in the past 60 days, I've been at a NATO advanced research conference in Bulgaria and at the Santa Fe Institute and at uh, George Washington University and uh, Georgetown Law Center and uh, High Tech Crime Investigators Association and uh, forgive me if I left anybody out, but it, it's just uh, wonderfully poignant for me to end it here with SPAF with this uh, tremendous program. So thank you all for coming. This is, um, as build a, a kind of a 10-year retrospective from 1996 to 2006 and, and why uh, this is so will kind of emerge as we go along. Now, how do I, uh, there we go. Um, Spaff went through introductions, so I'm, I'm just going to skip through some of this. Oh, by the way, there are 84 slides here. Don't worry. We're not going to go nearly through all of them. I'm going to skip through a lot of stuff. I'd be happy to email uh, the full presentation, anybody who's interested in it, and go into depth in different aspects uh, of different things if you want. Uh, so you'll, you'll see some things that will that, that fly by. We can follow up on them uh, later. But I'm going to hit some highlight salient points and go through rather fast a lot of material. So just quickly as an agenda, we're going to talk about something I call the dissonant convergence as opposed to the harmonic convergence. And then we're going to do a kind of a timeline, a very subjective timeline, uh, my point of view from 96 to 2001 and from 2001 to 2006, and then uh, tackle three big questions. So I always start off here now, which is talking about what I call the dissonant convergence, the 24th, 24th, 21st century security crisis. And um, talking about risk and talking about security, especially now after the last few years, cred credibility to me 
seems to be almost the biggest issue. Credibility and um, uh, authenticity and, uh, and making things relevant to people's personal lives in, in real ways. And so uh, I talk about the fact that uh, well, let's just go down the list. Global warming, nuclear weapons proliferation, pandemics, uh, failed states, natural disasters, terrorism, sustainability issues like overpopulation, organized crime, trafficking, and right down at the bottom, this is, again, my subjective risk matrix, cybercrime. Now, one of the interesting things, just to go back a minute, is I, I say these things are in large part interdependent and amplifying each other in, in many different ways. But it's important, especially when talking about cybercrime, and I mentioned NATO, you know, I was at this conference, a NATO advanced workshop on cyber terrorism. When they asked me to come, I said, well, you know, quite frankly, I don't know if I'm comfortable going to a conference about cyber terrorism since, you know, basically we're still debating whether or not this is something that even exists. But, but uh, I certainly am interested in infrastructure attacks. But the point is to just to, to really have credibility and authenticity talking about the very serious problems in cyberspace with cybercrime and cybersecurity, cyber risk issues in general, important to keep it in perspective. So this timeline begins in 1996 with the Nunn hearings. And I, I want to take you back to that, the, the Nunn hearings just as a demarcation point because um, Senator Nunn, the senior senator from Georgia, was very powerful. I think at that time the Senate was actually in Republican hands. But he was so influential that he could actually have meetings, and, and Republican senators could act, would actually show up. And in those days, the national security policy was bipartisan, truly bipartisan. And there was a, a realization on Capitol Hill that cybersecurity was going to be one of the major national security issues of the 21st century in many different ways. And they acknowledged in ways that we didn't even really fully understand yet. And so there was this impotence. There were these hearings. Uh, some wonderful people talked to them. Some of them are listed there. Somehow I sneaked into the mix. And um, a, a lot of a very important testimony, it's all still out there. There was this impetus that something was going to get done and something needed to get done and, and some very smart people and very dedicated people were working on it. And during the hearing, I, I, this is part of my text, I said, it's human beings that are building systems, deploying systems, breaking into them, so it is human beings that we have to reach in terms of training, awareness, understanding their responsibility not only to their corporations and to their own job security, but to their country and the world. And so I just want to underline this at the beginning that this talk is more about the human Passion. factor and it didn't take long at all. than it is about the technical factor. It's about the, was that? It's about the human factor as more than the technical factor. It's, it's a more of an existential talk than an academic talk. It's more of a psychological talk than a technical talk. And it's more journalistic than it is historical or scientific. So the reason I was at the, the Nunn hearings was to talk about the CSI, FBI, Computer Crime and Security Survey. And this is something we started with the FBI in 1995. Um, they came to me and they asked a series of questions. And I said, well, these are wonderful questions. Uh, the problem is we have the same questions you do, so we 
uh, we try to articulate them and go out to the community uh, in a collaboration and, and ask the questions and see if we could find things out. Our aim was really more to raise awareness and to encourage uh, research and to really, we, we saw ourselves as asking questions more than answering them. And uh, it was my hope that after a few years of this, uh, more serious, more, more scientific studies would, would get underway and we get to the bottom of some of these, some of these disturbing issues. Um, again, I said the methodology was non-scientific, but we did identify trends. Uh, and at, when we started to track them and we started to discern them, uh, many people said, oh, that's not, that's not true. Uh, and one of them was that eternal, external attacks were on the rise, that perpetrators were not only insiders or juveniles, and that there were significant financial losses. And again, remember, this is the timeline here is 95, 96. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the data, but these are some of the sh slides showing this is the increase over a five-year period of, six-year period, really, of the uh, Internet as a possible source of attack and uh, likely sources of, a, a point of attack, rather, and likely sources of attack, people were very surprised to see, not surprised to see independent hackers at disgruntled employees, but very surprised to see that their corporate competitors uh, were often perceived as likely sources of attack. People, a lot of people were in denial about that. And then, of course, we started to try to quantify the financial losses, which was perhaps uh, the most controversial part of the survey. And... Uh, and, and I think most important part of the survey. And these are some of the numbers that we came with, uh, up with over time in terms of respondents who were able in some way to quantify uh, financial losses. Uh, people argued that these figures were ridiculous and outlandish. And some people did, and other people would say, well, they're too low. So I knew we were doing something right because some people were telling us they were too low and other people were telling us they were too high. So I figured... We, we, were, we were groping toward what the actual shape of the elephant was. So just as an exercise for myself, I took um, 11 news items. I found 11 news items within a two-year period, 98 and 99, that actually uh, cited uh, you know, some uh, financial loss figures and tabulated them uh, and came up with uh, 15 million for 11 news items in that two-year period. And then... I added in uh, the Mitnick case, which was 291 million, and I added in the last Mitnick case, and I added in, we hope, the last Mitnick case, and I added in the, uh, the, the, 80, million, uh, the 80 million that should be uh, for Melissa, and I came up with a total of uh, um, 387,252,000, uh, well, you see it there, uh, 387, and then, and then I compared it to one year, of the CSI survey, 273 respondents for 265 million, and I said to myself, you know, these are conservative figures. Now, one last thing about this, as I said, what we were hoping was that we would get some, some uh, models. I can't believe I'm standing here, can I? Well, I sort of can, but I wish I, it wasn't so plausible to, to, to accept that I'm standing here 10 years later with no models, no real models, uh, whether they're from the academic world or the corporate world 
or, or even the world of uh, investigate, you know, law, enfor law enforcement investigation that we can give people and put in their hands and say, here's how to quantify your financial losses. Uh, there, there are some good re well, there are some, they're not good reasons. There are some real reasons why, but we'll go into them as we go along. The, uh, this, uh, these models still aren't there, and I think they're very important. So uh, the survey for me, by the way, I ended it, I ended my participation with it in, in after seven years, and I felt really the CSI-FBI survey had uh, lived through uh, its life cycle, and really it should either change or, 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 or they shouldn't, we shouldn't just keep going over the same material with the same body of people. But that's another issue. Um, the other thing I did that, that uh, Spaff alluded to was current future danger. And what I was trying to do there, I called it my anti-book. It was 30 pages long, and the idea was anybody could read it on a plane ride. Rather than write a book, I wanted to write an anti-book because I wanted to write something that an executive might actually read and by the end of it be concerned about his organization and what they should be doing. And so now remember, this is a pre-9-11 trajectory of events. And uh, pre-9-11, when you looked at cybercrime and you looked at the potential of what was out there, you realized that th this was going to be a huge problem. And the longer I looked at it, the more I realized that you couldn't think about cybercrime, you couldn't think about cyberspace without thinking about the world economy, the global economy. You couldn't think about the World Wide Web without thinking about uh, the global economy and they kind of the two circles, if you can imagine two circles when they merge, it's really just one circle. And, and so I started to understand that there were geopolitical and, and macroeconomic issues and so these are some of the, the, the big economic events that led up to uh, the millennium. And then of course on the cyber side you know, there, there, there's this extraordinary fact. I mean, radio took 50 years to reach 50 million people. TV, what, took 15 years. And the World Wide Web did it in, 50, in uh, five years. So something profound was going on. And then I said, well, there's four major issues. And at this time, I remember, this is 1998, 99, 97. People are talking about viruses. Is it safe to use my credit card over the internet? You know, uh, what, what, uh, uh, you know how, what if I lose all my data? But really the big issues were then, uh, again, heading toward the millennium, economic espionage, electronic commerce crime, what I call infrastructure attacks, but is often referred to as information warfare or cyber terrorism, and what I was calling at the time personal insecu cyber insecurity, which uh, identity theft is an excellent example of. How many people have seen this picture, or some version of this picture? I, I know Professor Spafford has. This is, uh, this is one, uh, some of uh, Bill Cheswick's mapping technology. Uh, this is a very large telephone company. We'll just say that. It's a very large telephone company in the United States. And the red veins, the purple veins are the networks they knew about, and the red veins are the networks they didn't know about. So, you know, one, one picture in, in, in many cases is worth a thousand words. So I wrote uh, Tangled Web, uh, 
about in 2001, I had written my anti-book, then I wrote my book, and this was an attempt to institution, provide some institutional memory to some, some very important cases that were being uh, investigated, uh, arrests were being made, convictions were being made, um, there was history being made, but people really weren't seeing the big picture. Again, we were still talking about, is it safe to use my credit card over the web? And so we always talked about, uh, the, uh, you know, I, I remember standing in the courtroom when Carl Salgado, this uh, man was sentenced. This was an average hacker using known, uh, using common hacking tools, exploiting known vulnerabilities, and he got 87,000 credit cards, and uh, he, he, he uh, his only mistake was he tried to sell them to an FBI agent, so he ended up in jail. There were firewalls in place, SSL was in place, um, and yet we were, you know, the media would call and say, well, is it, is it safe to use our credit cards over there? Well, that was never the point. I mean, that's an issue. Is it safe to use my credit card over the web for the single transaction? Yes, as a, you know, yes, the encryption could, could uh, secure a single transaction to a certain point. But the bigger issue was what's happening with these servers full of information. Um, and then there were some other things like the phone master case, which went largely unnoticed during the 90s, where basically this, this group of hackers for hire, and again, these were not uh, juvenile hackers uh, doing sport hacking. These were people who had a menu uh, you could you could get somebody's f credit report. You could get their motor vehicle record. You could get Madonna's telephone number for $500. Um, th th and who were their customers? Their customers were largely uh, private investigators. So we, we tried to document some of this stuff. And then I started to come up with um, new kinds of uh, profiles of uh, crimes and profiles of attack. So there was, the, the, I started categorizing in my head the Merrill Lynch factor, the, the John Deutsch factor, the Shaq factor. Anybody familiar with the Shaq case? Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. This is an animal rights group which was uh, concerned with, you know, the, the, the cruelty to animals, the torture and use of animals in, in scientific research. And they weren't getting anywhere with Huntington Lab, this lab in England, so they started targeting their providers. So they got um, they got the uh, uh, the insurance provider to drop them as an insurance client, and then they got the accounting firm, global accounting firm, to drop them as a as a client. And they were very effective. How did they do this? They did it with denial of service. They did it with distributed uh, uh, DOS attacks. They did it with um, uh, voicemail hacking, they did it with website hacking, they did it with physical harassment. It was a fascinating case. And then there was Operation CEO, which was an early tip-off about identity theft, the hybrid crime of identity theft and hacking, where this uh, ex-con who was a busboy in um, Brooklyn was, uh, uh, you know, had established identities as Ross Perot, as, uh, as Oprah, as, you know, dozens of the most famous and powerful and wealthiest people in the world. And, uh, you know, this was an early indication of what um, uh, identity theft was going to be like. And the, the Hansen case, so I called it the Hansen factor. This was where an F, not only was an FBI agent betraying his country, but he was betraying his country, the ultimate insider, an FBI agent betraying his country, but he was betraying his country 
he was posing as a computer security expert within the FBI and intentionally hacking into systems to show they were, they were unsafe while he was selling di digital, digital secrets to, to, the, to, the, to the Russians. So that, uh, with all these kind of factors, I was trying to organize uh, a ways to look that you could see that you really had to think outside the box of what crime in the 21st century was going to look like. So by the end of this period of time, I had this list, this checklist of false notions about cybercrime, and they were almost the, it was almost everything that I was hearing uh, in, in the popular media turned on its head. For instance, that cybercrime costs are exaggerated, that cybercrime was a rare occurrence, that insiders were 80% of the problem and outsiders were only 20% of the problem. And I, I, this, this particular thought form was so pervasive that I even read my, myself quoted as saying this. So in other words, the, the thought form was so pervasive that you could tell a, a reporter that no, no, it's not, it's not that 80% of the problem is insiders and 20% of the problem is outsiders, but they would hear it anyway because they couldn't accept that it was anything else. Well, people would say to me at that time, they said, well, what, what, what is it then? I'd say, well, it's more like 80-80. 80% of the problem is insiders, 80% of the problem is, is, is outsiders. It's trickier than that. Another one was that the problem was mostly juvenile hackers. Another one was that economic espionage was done almost exclusively by the turning of insiders. Um, and then there were misconceptions about the nature of security programs. Like that, that technology was security, that policies and awareness posters were security, that, that budget, that really the secret was budget, that if you had enough budget, you could have security, or that it was some combination thereof that, that provided security. And all these things were, to me, failing to, to, to get the big picture. So I, I developed this, this list of false notions about security, and this is the way that, to me, the, the, the arc of my thinking was going, and then 9-11 happened. And you know, on 9-11, there's two things I always say about 9-11, and people say, well, what does that have to do with cyber crime? I said, cyber security, or risk, cyber risk. I said, well, we're really, we're talking about risk, and really we're talking about security. Cyber is a vector, or a dimension of risk. You, you can no longer just talk about computer security as if it's something separate from everything else. And the two things about 9 11 there's three big lessons to me from 9-11 um, that I'll, I will keep talking about until they mute, turn the mute button on with me. And the first one is that the world did not change on 9-11. Um, some people woke up to what the world was like on September 10th, but the world did not change on 9-11. And the second one is that um, you, we had a, a tremendous opportunity to raise the awareness of people and educate people. And by educating and raising the awareness of people, I mean empowering them, not scaring them, not making them afraid or making them um, feel totally dependent on some greater power outside of themselves, but empowering them to understand, to do their own risk analysis in their own lives to do their own crisis management and business, you know, continuity planning in their own lives, to do the kind of work in their own psyche that they needed to do to, to live in a, a dangerous time. We had a tremendous opportunity, and we really haven't 
taken advantage of that opportunity. And the third thing from 9-11 is that it was not an intelligence breakdown. This is the other thing you always hear. The world changed on 9-11. No, it didn't. 9-11 was the fault of intelligence breakdown. No, it wasn't. There was plenty of intelligence. The problem was what happened with that intelligence. The problem was farther up the food chain. So after 9-11, I, um, I decided I wanted to be operational, and I wanted also to think about things beyond just the, the narrow scope, uh, to think about cybercrime and related security risks uh, beyond the narrow scope of uh, the Computer Security Institute. And so I went to work um, in the private sector, and uh, I'm going to share uh, three stories from the private sector. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're generic, but they're real stories. And, they, and they, show, they explain something about what's broken. Because the point of this talk, more than anything, is um, we were very right 10 years ago about how bad things would be today in cyberspace. We were largely very right. What, what is stunning to me is how little good has come out of the last 10 years in terms of cyberspace. And, and the one thing that I want you to walk away with is what, a version of why that is. So um, this is now, the, let's think about a global corporate entity. Um, no, this, this, the, if you assume this story is about me and you assume this story is about where I worked, you could be wrong. So don't go there. This is a true story, but the, the names have been changed. Uh, you have a global security and awareness program targeted for the total workforce. There are things that everybody should know. There are things the IT professionals should know, the human resources professionals should know, the executives and their support staff should know. Uh, I won't go down into the, the mechanics of how, uh, how it was done or, or, and, and the ways in which it was done, but this was the basic concept, to target the groups of people and give them the kind of information Awareness and education for the total workforce is one thing. Awareness and education for an IT professional is another. Um, and, and so this global awareness program uh, had what I call the three E's. You engage people with awareness, you enlighten them, and you empower them. And, the, the third, and it also had the second, the e, the, the second set of uh, three E's, which is that it was economical, efficient, and effective. And this particular global organization, this awareness and education program, was also canceled. Why? Well, to tell that story, we'll go to another story. The same, in the same vector of time, this particular organization had, uh, was undergoing a series of social engineering attacks from all over the world. Somebody was calling, literally, this organization's offices and operations all over the world trying to elicit information about a certain group of people within that organization. A couple of the calls were successful. Um, a counterintelligence operation was uh, uh, conducted. Uh, analysis was done. Um, you know, uh, bulletins and alert went out to people so that they would know how to handle such solicitations. And it came down to the people who were analyzing the incidents realized that it had something to do with a particular engagement, and if they could find out what this engagement was, they could pretty much determine who was doing this. But the people involved wouldn't give them 
the information they needed because it was secret. So now you have secrets from your own security professionals. So at that point, the case was closed. And here's another story from the corporate world. Uh, information, uh, uh, intrusion detection system on the eve of deployment would, would have cost uh, $500,000. The rollout was delayed for a year. And the same year, they had a gala event for their executive team, and the party was 1.5 million. So interesting priorities. So what does it tell you about the corporate world? You know, there isn't a CEO in the world who will tell you that security isn't the security of our people and our reputation and our customers' data is the most important thing. There isn't a CEO or CIO in the world who will tell you that's not his number one, number two, or number three priority. And there isn't one in the world who will, who will tell his security team that they don't have a mandate. Of course you have, you have my mandate to get this done. We want you to change corporate culture until corporate culture begins to change and, and things start screeching in the night and they realize that they have to make choices. Uh, that they didn't realize that they would have to make. And then things get very interesting. And, and nine times out of, well, nine times out of ten, maybe that's an exaggeration. But in many cases, the choices aren't about money. It's not about how much it costs or, or the, the changing the way people do business. In many cases, it literally is corporate culture or how things are perceived. This particular entity, Entity X, they decided that they were better off not knowing. They decided their liability was better, their posture was better, the less they knew about the situation they were in. So they decided that if they knew, they'd have to do something. And then they could, and then they could be, their risk would be greater. They would risk greater liability because they would, have, they would take on the knowledge and there they would be. They also decided that their, their personnel, they didn't want their personnel to know all that much about security. Because if, they, if your personnel knows, then your personnel can say, well, wait, this isn't, you're empowering people. And, uh, you know, the one side of that is, well, you're giving people ideas, they, you know, they can be conducting identity theft. Yeah, that's one side of it. But another side of it is you're giving people ideas and they say, hey, this isn't right. This has got to change. More trouble. More disturbance in the corporate culture. And the third thing is they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to re uh, entrust secrets to, to people with, without vested interest. So these are some of the real issues that no one ever talks about that comes up in the, on the security side, on the corporate side of, of some of these security issues and why we don't get a, past a certain point. In the last year or so, I've been writing and speaking independently, and uh, part of my process has been uh, doing this retrospective on the last 10 years. And so I just want to revisit uh, these false notions. Now it's, uh, you know, a few years later. Uh, remember the Salgado example from 1997. He had 80,000 credit cards. Nobody paid attention. Okay, so first quarter, 2000. 
these are some incidences about 800,000 credit cards times the $125 it would take to cancel the credit card and, and reissue another one. You can do the math yourself. First quarter 2001, uh, the national, the FBI's warning over 40 companies in 20 states. They've got 14 field offices and seven Secret Service offices investigating an organized hacker activity that's coming out of Eastern Europe. I remember when Don Parker would stood up in Washington in 1994, the Wild West of NetSec, it was called. He was like Jeremiah in the wilderness. And he said, they're coming, <laughs> you know, from Eastern Europe, you know, all those KGB agents, you know, that are out of work, and all those guys coming back from Afghanistan. And be, oh, gosh, you know, what, what, uh, what FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What, what exaggeration? Well, it was all true. First quarter of 2001. First quarter of 2002, a guy in Siberia hacks into a bank in Virginia, gets, uh, takes a trophy of 1,500 accounts and uh, threatens to put them online and he gets uh, a $10,000 extortion. Well, the point of this story is it's, not a, it's a petty amount of money. It's a petty story, but that's the point. Some petty criminal in Siberia successfully until until he was you know until it was uh, it was brought in you know he extorted money from a bank in West, from a bank in Virginia first quarter 2003 now the, the there's more numbers there's more digits in the in the news stories now it's 8 million instead of 80,000 credit cards or 800,000 credit cards now it's 8 million credit cards and, uh, and wh how did they get here? Now, now they're breaking into the third-party processing centers. Because why? Because financial institutions have, relative to the rest of the world, serious information security systems. So where's the weakest point? Just like, just like in classic military uh, attack. If you, can't, you know, if you can't attack the convoy, attack the people who are you know, attacked through the supplies into the convoy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then you jump ahead to 2005, 40 million credit cards, uh, the MasterCard uh, case in 2005. And then, you know, you had the Choice Point case and the LexisNexis case showing more of this kind of uh, the breakdown, the hybrid between identity theft and hacking and also the, the, the real issue. Uh, which when everybody was talking about encryption and debating encryption, oh, you know, we've got to be able to export, you know, this, and we've got to, oh, no, you can't export that. Meanwhile, the big issue was authentication, and nobody was paying any attention to it. And that's what most of these stories are, authentication meaning, you know, who, how do you know I am who I say I am? So uh, this was 2005. In organized crime in cyberspace, we kind of alluded to it already. This was this this addresses this whole thing of remember uh, the the, uh, the 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 giant denial of service attack where they were hitting all they were it was like they were going down the Nasdaq exchange and hitting all the icons of the the internet uh, revolution. They were eBay, Yahoo, they were hitting everybody. And uh, Mafia Boy, one, and one kid, I think, in Canada was arrested. I always alluded to the fact that, in that case, to me, it was like uh, when, when a bunch of teenagers break a window and the little kid who's with them gets caught because he has shorter legs, you know? 
It's the kid with the shorter legs that gets caught. And the juvenile hacker is always in the headlines because they're the ones that get caught. At, at this situation uh, of organized crime in cyberspace is to the point where I, when I was in this, at this NATO conference in Bulgaria, Bulgaria is coming into the EU. The EU says, you're coming in unless you can't deal with your organized crime problem. If you can't deal with your organized crime problem, you can't come into the, you, you can't come fully in. This is how serious the situation is. And what is their organized crime problem? It, a, a large part of it is cyber. Uh, false notion number five, if you remember, was that, that economic espionage was done uh, primarily by the turning of insiders. So uh, there are many examples, but again, most of them uh, don't get talked about. But uh, uh, the Hafredi case in Israel was, uh, how many people, just could I raise hands, how many people uh, you, you know about the Hafredi case? So here was a, basically a private, it, it, they're fascinating twists to the story. It's kind of like a soap opera, it starts out kind of like a soap opera uh, in a personal life where somebody was trying, developed a Trojan to spy on their ex-lover or something. But it, it ends up being, private investigators using Trojans to uh, uh, attack companies for other companies. And it shows, you know, these were cable companies, telephone companies, cell phone companies, car dealerships. There was a subsidiary spying on its uh, parent company. Uh, and of course, the corporations had no idea that the investigators were using Trojan horses to get the information. But, you know, just brought what? They think they were just using the old-fashioned methods of bribing people and tapping phones. But this is, this is, the, this is the nature of it now. The, the remarkable thing about these cases is that they, they ever come into the press, but now they're coming into the press more and more. You just saw the, the, the extraordinary Hewlett-Packard case. Again, where some innocent executives just stumbled in the middle of this thing where these ruthless private investigators were just going wild, with, you know. Uh, had no idea it was happening, that there was gambling in Casablanca. They had no idea. Um, okay, so we talked about the corporate sector and just quickly the industry response. Um, you know, I, I walked into the RSA conference last year and I, I, I was concentrating on something. I walked into the hall and there on the big screen was Bill Gates and there he was standing below the big screen and I literally said for a moment, uh, foolishly, I said, I must be in the wrong conference in the right city, but I must have walked, right, I must be in the wrong conference. And I said, oh no, that's right, he's speaking. And I said, wait a minute, he spoke last year. And then I said, wait a minute, he spoke the year before. And then I realized, yes, that's right, Bill Gates has keynoted the RSA conference for the last three years. So I said, well now this is an extraordinary, extraordinary um, uh, symbol for, for, huh? Irony. Yes, thank you. Uh, particularly, because uh, the first of these three years, uh, Dan Gear was another person I respect tremendously, who was at that time the chief technology officer for Aztec, he basically lost his job because he signed on to a paper that said Microsoft software is a national security problem. Well, guess what? It is. And uh, what this is really about is the human factor. That's what I said. You were going to get a talk about the human factor. And this is a place where the human factor enters in. Because in most people's minds, somehow it's acceptable 
So I wrote an article. I said, well, what we know, and I asked some of the smartest people I know what they would, if, if, if the RSA had done, had done something really different and said, well, Bill, here's what we'll, we'll do. We'll put you and your development team leaders in the front row. Thank you. We'll put you and your development leaders in the front row and we'll have, the, we'll have Dan Gear and the seven people come up and they'll ask you, they'll, they'll tell you what they think. That would be an interesting event. Then there's the government response. Now remember, we started off with a Senate hearing 10 years ago. Okay? After that Senate hearing, within two years, there was a Presidential Decision Directive 63. Okay, two years, that's pretty fast in Washington. And uh, because there was a sense of urgency and conviction. And then, all of a sudden, it takes five years to get to the National Secure Strategy to Secure Cyberspace, which Dick Clark uh, released and developed and released in, uh, under his leadership in 2003. It was finally released. It, was, it could have been released before then, but it was finally released in 2003. Okay, we're starting to lose momentum here, folks. But then let's uh, look at some of the factors. Well, there was a change in administration that happens every four or eight years. God willing, and then there's uh, the departure of Clark himself, who was a considerable figure in all of this. There was the establishment of the DHS, and the cybersecurity czar position was moved out of the White House, uh, as was FEMA, and you saw how well that worked. And uh, we also had some tax cuts, which took away the surplus. And then you have a situation in 2006 where you have uh, one of the major industry associations saying, we've got real problems here. And all of a sudden, we're like a ship becalmed at sea. And uh, these are just some uh, uh, news clippings from that period of time, pointing out also that uh, not only were we not making any progress, there was no, nobody had been appointed to fill the position. This is uh, six months ago. Um, these are actually dieballed machines. And what I'm going to say has nothing to do with politics. It really doesn't. Because it could be a single cyber Ted Kaczynski, like the Unabomber, who could change the results of an election if you rely on software in its present state and the systems that are being used in their present state. And this has been documented many different ways by the GAO, by NYU Law School, by Yale, uh, Princeton. Wonderful people have put a lot of work in this. Six years ago, we were talking about this and people thought we had tin foil hats and we were waiting for the aliens to come. This is real. And so I asked this provocative question. We look for the information warfare attack or the infrastructure attack on the power grid or the FA of the AV air, control, air traffic control system or the financial system. I propose, for all you know, it might as well have already happened in one of your most vital infrastructures, which is your electoral process itself. Uh, I did some work recently on uh, economic espionage. I'm going to skip through that because basically we talked about it in, in another aspect. And really what we're saying here is uh, in just, just the very phrases, industrial espionage. And then we kind of started talking about economic espionage as we woke up to the, to the global uh, economy. But really now I think we should be talking about information age espionage. It's different. So, uh, and I won't have time to do this justice, but I, I asked three big questions of some really people who I respect tremendously, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of their answers. 
Uh, and again, I'll send you all these answers um, in email, and you know we can uh, tear them apart. Where are tax and countermeasures today vis-a-vis -vis 10 years ago or even five years ago? What are you seeing out there that surprises you? Let's see. Um, I think I'll go with uh, this guy. No, we'll save one. I got another one for him. Uh, Keith Rhodes of the GAO. Uh, very few people speak of the cyber realm as being just another arrow in the adversary's quiver. Cyber is just another vector for attack, not something special and discreet unto itself. Second question was, what evolutionary or revolutionary spirals can be expected in attacks for the next two, three to five years? Uh, Becky Bass, we are way overdue for major infrastructure attacks on SCADA and other device management systems. The attack techniques won't necessarily be unique, though the goal of the attacks may be subtler than the brute force denial of service. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, the third question was, in general, uh, cybersecurity and cybercrime, would you say one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back? I, I, I said they could, they, they could give some other... Uh, they could give some other uh, a measure if they wanted. Um, Rick, is, Rick Farrow's answers are way too discouraging, so I won't even go there. Uh, Justin Peltier, one step forward, two steps back. Keith Rhodes, while our attack morphologies are getting much better, one step forward. The attack vectors are increasing in number and speed due to everyone having high-speed internet and access, da-da-da. So my, if my math is correct, that's one step forward, two steps back. And Gene uh, Spafford, uh, it's almost like we're making no steps. We have kept adding new technologies that are dangerous, seen our decision-making, choosing the path of least cost but significant danger. And they have consistently applied Band-Aids for the most current threat but fa failed to heed the long-term advice or provide investment for research. Overall, I'm not very optimistic about the future. Neither am I. And, and the reason I'm not is not because of uh, lack of skill, lack of will, uh, in, the t in, the, in the security community or in the, or in the intelligence community or in the technical community or on the Internet itself, but because of leadership. I mean, what we've talked about here is 10 years failed leadership. It's nothing to do with in the, corp in the corporate world, in the world of government, in the supposed security industry itself, failure of leadership. And, and uh, so I say in closing that you... Your most dangerous adversary is not the hacker, it's not the cyber criminal, it's not the disgruntled insider, it's not even the cyber terrorist. Your greatest adversary is the weak leadership at the corporate level, at the government level, and, uh, and, and that's where we are after 10 years. So, hopefully, I've given you some, uh, some things to think about and and fight with me over. And uh, I think I've probably got a couple minutes left. Huh? Even longer. Even longer? <laughs> so, um, what, would, what would real leadership look like? Again, we talk, I talked about the, the example of the RSA conference of you know, Bill Gates. I mean, look, Bill Gates belongs on the cover of Time Magazine for understanding there's a problem you know, if we're understanding the, the, the social problems uh, 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 and uh, the problems of uh, the millennial, the issues surrounding the millennial goals and other things, but he doesn't belong uh, keynoting a security conference for three years in a row. There's something wrong with that picture. 
Another example is, um, uh, you know, what happens in the, uh, the security, in security within the corporate world. We throw around terms like risk. And, uh, we talked about Entity X. Um, real leadership in the corporate boardroom is saying to your general counsel, you know, I don't think you're, I, I think you've got to expand your understanding of what liability is. These guys are talking about something. That, that, it, that, you have, that you did not cover, you know, in, in law school. You have to expand your idea of what liability is. And quite frankly, you have to understand, you have to expand your idea of what risk is beyond li legal liability in civil matters. And uh, an example of leadership in the government, uh, well, you know, uh, it, whether or not we should have had a Homeland Security Department uh, is one question. Whether or not it was organized properly is another question. But any spectrum of threats in the 21st century that doesn't somehow acknowledge that cybersecurity is one of the, 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 the fingers on the first hand you use to start counting, not the first one, but it's up there, is, is a flawed national security policy. Uh, and it doesn't matter if the, that person sitting in the White House or that person sitting in DHS or wherever. But that person, for a large part of the, the person wasn't even sitting there. It wasn't, the position wasn't even filled. And again, it's not a question of um, uh, ideology or it, 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 it's about understanding the world that we're living in and how to react to it on a, on a personal level. It's a personal, these are personal choices that people make. Um, and, and so each, each area you can go through and you can see where decisions are made by people that will, uh, that will change the course of events, uh, even, even though the technical answers may be there, uh, the organizational answers may be there, if the will isn't there, if the, if the clarity of mind isn't there, it's not going to get done. So that's why I, I began with the human factor and, and I end with the human factor. Now I've gone one minute over. So I'll, I'll lead with, a, with an observation uh, that we have so many people who uh, don't get flu shots, don't wear seatbelts, right. continue to smoke, exactly. uh, and, and other kinds of risky behavior when they should know better. I mean, even among the college population, uh, fr uh, free or almost free flu shots and the majority don't get them. Uh, the amount of smoking that occurs on a college campus is astonishing. And we know what kind. Uh, we got all upset over 3,000 people, two, a little over 2,000 people on 9-11, and 644,000 a year die in the U.S. from cigarette smoking. Yeah. Um, so there's a fundamental problem of psychology, not only at the top, yes. but all the way down. Yeah. I think that's a great point, leadership in, in, in one's personal life, too. Absolutely. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because... I, in awareness and education, that's one of the things I'm trying to uh, switch on in people is when we design awareness and education programs for a large organization, I talk about home PC security or child safety online, and they say, well, what are you talking about that for? That has nothing to do with it. I said, don't you, if you can make them understand how it affects them personally, it's the same issues. And once you, and it's like old thing from the Peace Corps, if you give somebody a, a fish, you know, they can either eat it or it, it'll rot before they cook it. Or, or if you 
give them a fishing pole if you can show people how to think about risk and crisis in their own lives then then you change it that's the big thing yeah thank you sir uh, we have a question in bloomington so you you mentioned or you, you spoke a little bit about the way that businesses calculate risk in, in hack attacks. And one of the examples you gave was the $280 million yeah. that, that companies stated that Kevin Mitnick did. That was now, a provocative inclusion, but yes, I did. And $80 million of this $280 million estimate included the, the money that, that Sun spent to purchase the Solaris operating system from AT&T, which wow. they then did not... Yeah. Um, they did not mention this in their IRS filing for the year or did not disclose this as a loss to their shareholders. So how can yeah. we expect companies to provide accurate uh, loss information uh, in regard to hack attacks? Uh, what can we do as a profession or what can we, what can we ask our, our legislators to do to try and get this accurate information out of them, uh, given their tendency to sort of throw large numbers around? Well, that's a, that's a great question and, and, you're, and I... And, and you've brought up a, there are a lot of fascinating things about that that particular figure, that Mitnick uh, case figure. Um, I think the biggest I think the biggest number in that whole loss total was uh, uh, project, uh, market share, some kind of loss of market share, if I remember uh, properly, which is an interesting thing. Um, how to get them to do it? I, 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 you know, that that's a huge question. The other huge question is how to quantify it. I think we could actually provide tools to quantify things if, if the funding was there for the research and people were willing to participate in, in government and industry. That would be there. But how to get them to do it is a tricky thing. You know, I, I, I have to point to Sox, Sarbanes-Oxley, as an example. I don't know uh, how many people have experience with that, but I, just off the top of my head, I would guess a lot more money has been earned selling, consulting on becoming Sarbanes-Oxley compliant than has been spent uh, evaluating or holding people to the fire for not being Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. Uh, you know what I mean? So uh, we live in a world now where uh, I used to say, uh, well, uh, people don't like to hear this, but the, the reason you have lights when you come into a room most of the time and the reason you have a dial tone when you pick up the phone most of the time is because we have regulation. You know, but I, I used to say that because now it doesn't matter if you have regulations or not, sometimes. Because if you, if you, have, a, if you have a regulation and, and you don't have a regulator who's going to enforce the regulation, you know, then, then you might, you know, the regulation isn't the answer either. So we have some systemic problems. And uh, um, I don't know how much security professionals can frankly do about it because uh, generally speaking, if you persist too far, you'll basically be a, soon be an independent consultant somewhere. Uh, it, it, you know, I, 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 I know situations in the, in the corporate world where, remember the summer, it was Slammer, and there was like five of them one summer a few years ago. Five worms, three or four worms at once within a few weeks of each other. I said, this is fantastic. Don't you, and this particular entity was hit by all of these worms in one way or another throughout the world. I said, you could actually write a paper quantifying what happened. You know, because you had networks disrupted, you had people who lost data, you had, you had to clean systems out, you had to bring systems out. You could actually put numbers on this. Imagine how useful this would be. Well, do you think that paper ever got, do you think that research ever got written? 
No, because everybody was too busy. But the reality is, what if you give them that information, you give the boardroom that information, what do they do with this? Do we have to put this on our report this year? Do we have to tell the SEC about this? Do we have to tell our shareholders about this? what what happens at the you know it's not it, these are very serious problems, and I don't know, uh, uh, doctor, none. Well, I mean the the fundamental problem is that to quantify losses that occurred yeah. makes them look like they were negligent, right? And they simply don't want to do that. Right. That's the same reason right now why. We're getting pushback on replacing voting machines, right? Because it would expose either ignorance or negligence, uh, and no one no one likes to be in that position. It, it's it's I don't know if it's a failure of leadership or just a failure of character to be willing to step forward and say, "I've learned something new. It's time to do something different." Yeah, and 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 to be fair too, a, a failure. I, I mean, a general cultural issue, where where you know the, a, such character is not. Is not automatically rewarded, you know, or acknowledged as character. So uh, we need to uh, tie this up. And what I'll uh, volunteer is that if you give me a copy of the slides, anybody who wants a copy of them can contact me, and I'll provide them. And uh, let's all thank uh, Mr. Power for his visit. <laughs>